0: You know friends, most of the problems we have in life revolve around relationships and conflicts. And I sometimes wish the Lord were here amongst us to give us insight into how to handle such things. I wonder if he were here today, what would he teach us and how would he expect us to handle all those situations in life? What would happen if the Apostle Paul was here? What would he teach us and what would he expect us to do? What would Paul and Jesus want to do if they could sit down with us today? I've also wondered about that. But we're blessed because we can go to the New Testament and I think we can find answers to that. And I think what he would do is he would effectively sit down with us and teach us. You know there's only one passage in the new testament that talks about what we would today call a church service in our minds it's often something very different than what you see portrayed for us in the new testament that passage that talks about a what we would today call a church service is 1 corinthians 14 and it talks about what to do when a believer comes into the church the only other passage that comes in any way even close to that is james chapter 2 and that's really talking about a situation that arises in a synagogue But what i believe jesus just by sitting people down together and teaching them and then expecting them to go out and apply that teaching is actually the model i believe for a true new testament church at any rate that's what we're going to look at today we're going to look at what Jesus taught when he sat down with his disciples and to do that we're going to turn the clock back to the first century and we're going to look at the passage when Jesus' disciples asked the same questions I asked at the beginning of today which is they asked him and said Lord teach us well they actually said Lord teach us to pray let's see what happens so welcome to the Bible Project daily podcast My name's Jeremy McCandless, let's launch off together, and if you're here for the first time, make sure you hang around at the end, and I'll update you and tell you ways you can connect to this ministry, and get episode notes and transcripts of all the teaching that I do. Thanks for being with me, I'll see you at the end. straight off into a very famous passage of scripture. just going to start today by reading Luke chapter 11, beginning at verse 1, where it tells us, One day Jesus was praying in a certain place. When he finished, one of his disciples said to him, Lord, teach us to pray, just as John taught his disciples. He said to them, When you pray, say, Father, hallowed be your name your kingdom come your will be done on earth as it is in heaven give us each day our daily bread forgive us our sins for we also forgive everyone who sins against us and lead us not into temptation then jesus said to them suppose you had a friend and you go to him at night midnight and say friend lend me three loaves of bread a friend of mine on a journey has come to me and i have no food to offer him And suppose the one inside answers, don't bother me, the door is already locked and my children are in bed. I can't get up and give you anything. I tell you, even though he will not get up and give you the bread because of friendship, yet because of your shameless audacity, he will surely get up and give you as much as you need. So I say to you, ask and it will be given to you, seek and you will find, knock the door and it will be opened to you. For everyone who asks receives, and the one who seeks finds, and the one who knocks the door, the door will be opened. Which of you fathers, if your sons ask for a fish, will give him a snake instead, or if you ask for an egg, will give him a scorpion? If you then, though you are evil, know how to give good gifts to your children, how much more will your Father in heaven give the Holy Spirit to those who ask him? So that's the passage, very famous, incredibly straightforward in structure. First of all, the disciples, they come and ask Jesus a question, and then he gives what is a sort of a model prayer, known by many as the Lord's Prayer. And after that, he tells them a couple of quick parables to make some very critical observations about praying. But all of this has to do with the question they first asked, so let's look at the question and let's work together verse by verse and try and pull out all the meaning we can from it. So Luke 11:1 one says, one day Jesus was praying in a certain place, and when he finished, one of his disciples said to him, Lord, teach us to pray, just as John taught his disciples. Now, John did in fact teach his disciples to pray. So Jesus' disciples are aware of this. They've probably witnessed this. And they say, well, John's teaching his followers to pray. You too should teach us how to pray. Now, referring to this John the Baptist guy, clearly he's a remarkable figure in the early church. We know from the scriptures that the spirit of God filled him from the very point of which he was in his mother's room. He is the one who introduces Jesus the Messiah to the wider population. And he's the one that Jesus himself declared as the greatest prophet who had ever lived. Yet he too was someone who knew that he needed to come before the Lord and pray and he taught his followers to do so also. It's fascinating to note that Jesus also prayed. We see at all the key points in his life and ministry so far that Jesus prayed. He prayed at his baptism. He prayed before he chose his and 12 disciples. He prayed as the crowds increased and his workload increased. He prayed before the great confession by Peter. He prayed upon the Mount of Transfiguration. The Gospel of Luke up to this point has been sprinkled with references to Jesus praying. So the disciples have seen Jesus pray. Perhaps they're impressed by that and they think of John and they're aware that he and his disciples are praying. So these two things combine together and they come to him and say, Lord, teach us to pray. Now you will recognize what follows is what is commonly called the Lord's Prayer. The full version of it is found in Matthew's account on the sermon given at the Sermon on the Mount. Now, the Sermon on the Mount is recorded over three chapters in Matthew chapters 5, 6, and 7. And I did a full exposition of the Lord's Prayer over five complete episodes when I covered those chapters back in our time together studying Matthew. If you want a more detailed, thorough examination of it, I suggest you go back and check that out. But what we have here is what's commonly called the Lord's Prayer. Now I've said this before, I would say that the actual Lord's Prayer in the sense a prayer that he was seen to pray occurs in John chapter 17. Many would say this could be more accurately described as the disciples' prayer because this is a prayer that Jesus taught these guys, the disciples, to pray. In John 17, we see a prayer that's more a case of the Lord praying himself. But be that as it may, this passage is, of course, incredibly familiar to us, perhaps in danger for some of becoming too familiar. It's probably the most familiar passage in the Bible, to the point with that it get, often gets recited almost every Sunday in many denominations all over the world. But familiarity can breed a lack of insight. So we're going to approach it fresh and take a helicopter picture of it and then look at it verse by verse so when you take a wider view you note it's divided into two parts the first part of this passage deals with praying for lack of a better way to say it praying about the things that concern God and then the second half of the prayer concerns praying for things that concern well you and I the Ten Commandments you may remember were also divided into two parts The first four commandments also dealt with petitions with God, and the second part dealt with with situations regarding our humanity. Thus, this prayer we're looking at today in Luke's account in chapter 11 is likewise divided into these two same parts. The first part deals with God, the second part deals with us and our relationship with God. And the other thing we need to know is that each of these two divisions of the prayer Has has three divisions within it so there are six petitions six prayers requests of God made within the prayer three pertaining to God and three pertaining to you and I personally so let's first look at the three that pertain to God and he says this in verse 2 when you pray say father hallowed be your name your kingdom come your will be done on earth as it is to heaven so when you pray Father, well, we need to stop right there. We've already started, we need to stop, because this is the way we're told here to address God. Father, that in itself is a revelation. I don't know if you've noticed, no prayer in the Old Testament ever started with that phrase, with that familiar phrase of a relationship with God, an intimate relationship in that way. Remember that Jesus came with the mission to reveal God as our Father. So the person praying this prayer is of course going to be a believer and that person praying is declared to be a child of God, a child he calls God Father. John 1 chapter 12 says, But as many as received him, he gave them the power to become sons of God, even to them that believe in his name. So there you have it friends, when you trust in Christ, you believe in his name and you become a child of God and therefore God becomes your father. And it's important to note that this is the prayer, prayed by a believer talking to their heavenly father. The petition is, our father who art in heaven, hallowed be thy name. So the word hallowed simply means holy, the idea of being sanctified, set apart, venerated if you like. But isn't that a little odd? Hallowed be your name, it says. Why does it say it that way? Why does the name of God need to be venerated as holy? Well, let me make a simple observation. And if we turn to Psalm 9 for a second in the Old Testament, I think every time I to hear anything about the name of God, I think this, uh, this verse in the, in the Old Testament, well, I'm reminded of it because it's helpful. Psalm 9, 10 tells us, those who know your name put their trust in you. Do you see what's going on here? If you know the name of God, it says you can put trust in him. That's interesting, isn't it? But what does it mean when it says if you know someone's name, you can put trust in them? Well, in this case, it's because the name of God, Yahweh, is a name that signifies and tells us something about them. In other words, by knowing the name and what it means, then it means you can apply it to the person and that God is a person and thereby you know his character. And if you know someone's character, you know you can trust in them, can't you? So the point I'm making is that when it says here in the New Testament prayer, hallowed be your name, the idea is the fact that I know the name of God, I know what God's called, and the idea is that you now know God's character and his attributes by recognising his personhood through his name. So we know God's name and we call upon God to be blessed. We begin by thanking and praising God for simply who he is. And that's the first petition, as I said, the first of the three that pertain to God. The second one is in verse 2 when it says, your kingdom come. Now, there's a great debate over what this phrase means. Virtually all Christians worldwide would say that in a sense they know that the kingdom of God has come. And that is true. But as I pointed out several times, particularly when we went through the Gospel of Matthew, we came upon some material that demonstrated fundamentally the kingdom is something that was coming in the future. The full kingdom arrives in the future. Therefore, I do not believe that the New Testament, or when Jesus talks about the kingdom, they're talking about the kingdom being here now with him in a fully realized format. It's talking about the fact that, yes, he's here now, but that the kingdom of God will fully be realized on earth when Jesus comes back. Now, let me give you two simple proofs of that perspective well there's this passage of course because this passage states that the kingdom is in the future thy kingdom come it's got to come yet it's not arrived yet but one of the classic phrases is in the lord's supper where jesus says i will not eat it the fruit of the vine until i eat it again with you in the kingdom a statement which is placing it again in the future one other favorite of mine by the way is in acts one they say Uh, It talks about them questioning him and say, are you going to restore the kingdom now? And he said, no, no, I have something else in mind for you. So obviously the kingdom fully revealed, fully occurring, but in the future. So this is pertaining to God's complete plan for the earth and all humanity. And he's simply saying, Jesus is telling us that we have to pray that that kingdom comes. And that's the second petition to the lord and the third is it says simply say pray that your will be done on earth as it is in heaven so these things are what we are to pray for we are pray for god's person to be venerated we are to pray for his if i can put it this way his program to come about with his kingdom and also we are to pray that his purpose is to be realized on this earth I think this phrase is one of the most significant statements concerning prayer that you'll find anywhere in the Bible, friends. Let me put it and rephrase it like this for you The purpose of prayer is not to get our will done in heaven, it is to get God's will done on earth. That's what he's telling us here. Sadly, many Christian believers. Many people of many faiths, in fact, have this completely the wrong way around. They almost think of God as their servant. They think they can go to him and ask for what they want for, and if they pray long enough or hard enough or sincerely enough, they'll get it. Now, I do believe, let me add the caveat, that you can pray for things and ask for things that you want, but never, ever feel that in any way God is obliged to answer those to you. I think he often does answer those type of prayers out of grace. He wants, some, uh, as a good father, to give us the desires of our hearts sometimes when it's in our best interest, so sometimes he does. But I think the primary purpose, the main purpose of prayer, is to get and bring about God's will on earth. And this is the classic statement on this issue, definitive, and comes from the Lord himself. So if you want to pray biblically, friends, I would say we're actually called to go and investigate the scriptures, find out what God's will on earth is, and then to pray for that to happen. So the first part of the prayer is that we should begin with God, starting by thanking and praising God simply for who he is. We should also start by praising God and the model of the prayer presented to us here is the Lord's Prayer itself. But as I mentioned a few moments ago, there are two parts to this prayer. The first pertains to God that he is venerated. His program is is prayed for, that his purpose is fulfilled on the earth. And then there's a second part of the prayer, the Lord's Prayer, that actually pertains to us. And the first of the three petitions in the second section that pertain to us is we are called to pray, give us our daily bread. Now, praying for daily bread, obviously that includes having enough to eat every day, but it's a much, much broader concept than that, friends. The point we need to understand here is we're praying in the widest possible context for our daily needs to be met. Now, that will include food, but much more than that. Back in the Sermon of the Mount, he actually said, Don't worry about what you eat, don't worry about what you put on, don't worry about any of that kind of of stuff. Seek first the kingdom of God and his righteousness, and then all these things shall be added unto you. And here he sums that in an upshell by simply saying, Pray, Lord, give us our daily bread. Ask the Lord to give you what you need. That's my testimony for all my life. I have never lacked in my life so far for my daily needs. And I attribute that wholly to the fact that God has always given me my daily bread. Thanks be to him for that. So that's the beginning of the second part of the the Lord's Prayer, the daily prayer, to pray for your daily provisions. The second part is found in verse four when it says we are to pray for God to forgive our sins, but also to forgive everyone who sinned against us and to lead us not into temptation. So we're not only to pray for God to provide our needs, we're to pray for pardon, for forgiveness, if you will. Now the first petition, obviously bread, that pertained to our physical daily needs, but the second prayer, the second request, petition, is pertaining to our spiritual needs. 1 John chapter 1, verse 9, it tells us this, If we confess our sins, He is faithful and just to forgive our sins and to cleanse us from all unrighteousness. So it's perfectly clear throughout across scripture that we are indeed called to pray for the forgiveness of sins. Now you're probably going to say to me, some of you are going to have a light bulb switch on and say, but wait a minute aren't we already forgiven? Well, I've taught this before, go back and look at it in more detail in Matthew, but The nub of this is there's a distinction between what the Bible calls judicial forgiveness and this sort of family paternal forgiveness here. The best illustration of this fact is the fact that God is our Father. And very simply, that paints a picture. It allows us to access that idea that, of course, every parent forgives their child no matter what they do, right? But wrong steps by that child still put a strain on the relationship with the parent, right? And it might be perfectly appropriate for us as children to come to our father regularly and still say, forgive me. So yes, you're already forgiven, uh, but this is more about an attitude, a mindset that you need daily cleansing, if you like. That's the kind of thing it's talking about here. If you've trusted in Christ, you are a child of God and you are forgiven judicially of all the sins and the punishment that is due for those sins under the law of God revealed in the Old Testament. But remember now, friends, that you are, in Christ revealed, as a child of God, and he is, as this prayer says, our Father. That takes care of that issue. But there's the daily need to walk with him and a need for an open, honest relationship with him where we can confess when we fall short of the standard our Father God expects from us. And that's what's being talked about here in this prayer. Notice that he connects very strongly being forgiven with forgiving others. It's even stated stronger and more detail in Matthew's account, but it seems to be almost implying if you don't forgive others, you won't be forgiven. So let's be clear what's going on here. What is actually telling us is if you harbour unforgiveness in your heart or an unforgiving spirit towards someone else, then you're in trouble with the Lord because it's not going to be easy for him to forgive those things that are in you that he wants to forgive because you're holding them too close to your chest, so to speak. You're holding on to those daily sins instead of confessing them and giving them over to the Lord. So can you see what's going on here? We're to pray for provisions. We're to pray for the pardon for sins. And finally, we're to pray for protection. It also says in the latter parts of verse 4, Do not lead us into temptation, but deliver us from evil. Now this might be a bit tricky, because Jesus says, Don't lead us into temptation. So does that imply that the Lord sometimes does lead us into temptation? The answer, friends, is of course not. James is very clear about that in his New Testament letter when he states that God cannot be tempted with evil, nor does he tempt anyone else. So if that's the case, what is Jesus talking about here? Essentially, it's like an understatement. It's like you're asking for protection from temptation and being overcome by sin. What is the right time to overcome sin? temptation, well it's simply to pray before the temptation arrives. That's how we do it. We're asking for protection from temptation and being overcome. The problem for most people is we wait too long. We wait until we're in the midst of temptation to ask God to help us. The prayer implies that now we're not meant to wait till we're in the presence or in the act of that sinful temptation but we're asking and praying not to be led and be allowed to be brought into that situation and we're asking for spiritual protection in order that we don't even succumb to it that it doesn't you know that the that the the bird may land in the tree so to speak but we don't allow it to build its nest which is basically a simple way of saying this passage highlights the need to pray proactively. The three basic elements needs here should encompass your entire life, friends. The prayer and petitions offer here will talk about and deal with the past, the present and the future. Our pardon for sin relates to the past, our daily bread relates to the present and our protection from temptation deals with the future, doesn't it? so praying here as revealed in the lord's prayer is about seeking provision for all these aspects of your life past present and future moving on he doesn't stop there he proceeds to illustrate it for us with three stories sorry two stories a couple of parables starting in verse 5 Then Jesus said to them, suppose you have a friend and you go to him at midnight and say, friend, lend me three loaves of bread. A friend of mine on a journey has come to me and I have no food for him. And suppose the one inside answers, don't bother me. The door is already locked and my children are in bed. I can't get up and give you anything. I tell you, even though he will not get up and give you the bread because of friendship, yet because of your shameless audacity, he will surely get up and give you as much as you need. Now, let's note that the story is occurring at night because people would often travel at night, not during the day. So, therefore, we have a friend who drops in this other person in the middle of the night needing sustenance. Now, that in itself wouldn't be that unusual especially if someone was on the journey and lacking provision. So the man in this story goes to his friend's house, knocks on the door at midnight, it tells us, just to make sure we're aware it's in the, uh, late at night, and he says, help me, my friend. A friend of mine has arrived, and I don't have anything to give him. I need some food. And verse 7 gives this friend's response, explaining that his door is now shut for the evening, the children are in bed, and he can't get up without disturbing the whole household. Now to appreciate this idea fully you need to understand the arrangements of houses in that era. We today think of houses with multiple rooms and bedrooms separate even on another floor but it's crucial to understand in the conditions of that time in these poorer early first century houses at that time they were just one room structures with only one small window and a door. The floor was made of beaten earth covered with dry weed and brush and then the room was divided but not by a partition or wall by simply having a raised wooden platform area with two thirds of the space at ground level and a third on this slightly raised platform. And it is there that the family slept together, usually on sleeping mats, close together night to keep warm. And it was common even sometimes to bring livestock into the homes at night, adding to the challenge of getting a night's sleep without disturbing the whole family. So our friend, he doesn't come to the window. He's outside the door and it's at night. And the man hears him, and he's in bed with his children. I mean, the family are asleep, so they're all together on this raised platform. And if he was to get up and start gathering things together in the kitchen for him and open the door, that that would disturb the whole family. Now, the story doesn't go into the exact detail of what happens, but in verse 8, tells us the outcome that the man inside says he doesn't want to rise because of his friendship, but in the end, due to this guy's at the door's persistence, he eventually gets up and gives him what he needs. So it's persistence coupled with the nuanced sense of obligation, both to that man and to the wider Christian community, becomes the key. But of course, it's framed within the idea of persistence in prayer, where Jesus implies that what led this man to get up and give the man the requested bread. Is the fact that he was persistent in his request, and then moving on in verses nine and ten, Jesus instructs a little more on the giving of uh, on this prayer, on the application of this prayer by saying, "So I say to you, ask and it will be given to you; seek and you will find; knock and the door will be opened for you. For everyone who asks, receive. and the one who who seeks finds; and the one who knocks the door, it will be opened." So he encourages asking, seeking and knocking, promising that those who do so will receive what they ask for, find what they're looking for and have doors open to them. Again, this is aligning with the persistence that we're expected to display in our prayers revealed in the previous short parable. The mention of the son asking for bread emphasizes the father's willingness to provide us with good things, particularly things of the Holy Spirit. Jesus connects this to the broader prayer and his teaching because it's all about asking for daily bread, daily forgiveness, ongoing daily protection before we even get into difficult situations. And the Holy Spirit in this context is seen as the primary gift and aids us in our attempts to draw god in to help us overcome sin but also to understand the very will of god itself the narrative and the teachings put together the narrative of the prayer itself with the parables to illustrate it when pulled together emphasize the significance of not only praying but of persistent praying and seeking god out who is always wanting to be a willing and generous provider So the central message Jesus conveys in this passage is about the nature of our relationship with God, not as someone distant, but as now a loving father. And he begins and ends by highlighting this idea of a father who really knows our needs, really wants to give us what is best, delights in giving to to us and remains always approachable because of the new relationship we have with him as his child. Which is why it closes by saying which of you fathers if you had a son and he asked for a fish you would give him a snake or if he asked for an egg you would give him a scorpion. If then you who are evil know how to give good gifts to your children how much more will your father in heaven give the Holy Spirit to those who ask him. The key takeaway here is the encouragement friends to be persistent in prayer seeking god's glory seeking his kingdom his will as well as what we need our daily provisions our spiritual forgiveness of sins and our protection this is the suggestion for the most effective prayer one where we persistently approach god as our father recognizing and asking for the glorification of his name the advancement of his kingdom on earth the fulfillment of his will in our lives and thereby also we are able to ask for our daily needs, our spiritual needs, and our general well-being to be taken care of. And this simplicity of approach aligns with the structure of the Lord's Prayer. But remember, the disciples didn't ask Jesus to teach us what to pray. He asked them to teach us how to pray. And God gives us the how, not just the what here. The key phrase is, give us our daily bread. It suggests a prayer that is immediate, always there, a way of approaching God to meet our daily needs, implying that some answers to prayer can be expected promptly, but others will take the fullness of time to bring our will in alignment with His. However, throughout it all, Jesus reminds us of the importance of persistence in our praying, and that's the purpose of the parables of the end to illustrate that. That's where we see that certain requests can take longer to be fulfilled, especially when praying for God's overarching His kingdom plan to be outworked. So in essence, the disciples' request of Lord teach us to pray, reflects a desire for them, and I hope helps us grasp the essence of prayer itself. Learning to pray involves facing challenges above our abilities, But when we do so, we're able to foster our dependence on God by handing over to to Him in prayer. The conclusion being that when things in life, when the things we encounter become too vast for us to solve, the problems too intransigent, the way the Lord teaches to approach all our challenges in life is to simply pray and to trust and rely on Him. And this whole closing section emphasizes the emphasis that it is so important to prayer that in fact it tells us that being a great prayer is better even than more valuable to the body of Christ than being a great preacher. Think about that. The power of prayer to connect with the divine will of god himself our father god surpasses even the influence of any earthly individual preaching even though that's very important too therefore this passage should underscore for you and i the significance of alongside everything else we do we have to make sure we develop a profound and meaningful prayer life that recognizes the primacy of that in our relationship with God because that's the only true way we will truly align our hearts with his will and boy can we be thankful for the fact that he's given us this insight into how to pray. Okay, I've had to rush through at a rate of knots this morning because I have an appointment in six minutes. But we got through, there's a lot of material there. Can I just close by saying thanks for being here. I really appreciate the fact, every each and every one of you who are joining me on this journey. My name is Jeremy McCandless. The plan is to work through the whole Bible chapter by chapter, verse by verse. Thank you to everyone who supports this ministry. Thank you if you're here for the first time. Why not commit to it by subscribing wherever you get your podcasts from? Subscribing doesn't cost a single penny. It just means you'll not miss another episode each time there's one posted on your podcast provider's platform. And with that said, I'll say bye-bye for now, and I hope I'll see you back here again tomorrow on the Bible Project Daily Podcast. Bye-bye now.